0: Earlier this year, Blackstone signed a $6 billion deal to acquire Home Partners of America, a firm focused on developing single-family rentals. Invesco has backed Mind Management to spend up to $5 billion in acquisitions of single-family rentals. J.P. Morgan has also invested over half a billion dollars in American homes for rent to build new single-family rentals across the U.S. But why are single-family rentals such a popular investment choice? And when did this trend start? Welcome to Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal, your source for all things real estate. On today's episode, we're digging into the single-family rental market, a housing option that has attracted the wallets of some of the country's largest institutional investors. You'll hear from Ed Coulson, a professor at the University of California, Irvine's Center for Real Estate, and Josh Migdal, an attorney in Miami and an expert in some of the challenges that investing in the single-family rental market poses for these big firms. As the name explains, the single-family rental gives renters the opportunity of living in a standalone house with the flexibility and the amenities that come with renting a property. So why are firms like Blackstone so interested? Well, like any landlord, it's a way to make money. Rent is a steady stream of income. It also allows them to capitalize on increasing housing prices. But this is a relatively new phenomenon. 20 years ago, it didn't really make sense for investment firms to own single-family rentals traditionally
1: single-family property occupied by one household is owner-occupied, meaning the owner uh, either owns the property outright or owns it with a mortgage.
0: This is Ed Colson, a professor of economics at UC Irvine. Ed, can you walk us through the history of single-family rentals? Why didn't we see them pop up, say, 20 years ago?
1: There's been a couple of institutional reasons why single-family rental property has never been that had never been popular with with investors. A, a lot of this has to do with the scale of the property management. Maintenance and property management simply did not scale. And so what single family rentals there were would be managed as kind of a mom and pop organization that you'd have a, a husband and wife maybe who uh, owned their own house and then owned a house in the neighborhood and they would manage and maintain that property. And that would be the only investment they would have. So that's the the state of play in the early 2000s. And then the housing crisis comes along and a couple of things uh, happen. We're everywhere, but now it's official. We are in a recession. The you are watching us from the last home you'll ever own tonight, consider
2: yourself lucky. The abyss is deeper than most people think because there is a second mortgage shock heading for the economy. So I think that a result of the financial crisis was a lot of institutional investors were required to buy non-performing loans and pursuant to um, their ownership of non-performing loans, they... Um, As a consequence, they ended up being owners of large swaths of single family rentals and rather than, you know, exit at the bottom, they decided perhaps that there was a path to make a return on the loans that they were forced to purchase pursuant to their settlement agreements
0: Josh Migdall is an attorney in Miami who represented financial institutions and government-sponsored entities in litigation against title insurers, appraisers, and mortgage wholesalers after the 2008 financial crisis. But Ed Colson notes that another result of the financial crisis was the plummeting of housing prices.
1: They were attractive investments because prices were very, very, very low. And so they they reached bottom basically in, in a lot of places, most places, in about 2012. And so they became attractive targets for for investors. But the other thing that happened was is that the these substantial price declines and the accompanying kind of defaults and foreclosures that occurred uh, were, to to a large extent, I'm not overstate this, but to an interesting extent, these things were geographically concentrated. And so all of a sudden, uh, single family property became a viable investment class.
0: There were a lot of factors at play here. Lenders were stuck with bad loans and housing prices had plummeted. And most of this happened in a few cities. Las Vegas, Phoenix, and Atlanta were some of the markets where investors started to buy up single-family homes.
1: Those are three areas where it was particularly pronounced investment strategy. Large-scale investors like Blackstone and Wayfair, um, all these large-scale investors re- began to realize that this was a that this was a great and untapped uh, sector. I remember in two thousand fourteen or so when I was preparing some some research on this. I remember looking at kind of the annual reports of a lot of these uh, larger firms that were investing in this space, and they actually made a point of saying that you know we have large clusters of houses that are in the same. I'm making a number up here, same in a a 10 mile radius. And so it makes management and maintenance uh, scale upward. And so now we can go and invest in a whole lot of properties, geographically concentrated, rent them out and get a great return because the initial price was so low. And so this became the genesis of the the single family rental sector as far as large uh, investors were concerned. And they were aided, I think, and we're able to move beyond kind of the geographic concentration focus that I talked about earlier because of technology, just the ability to schedule maintenance online and be able to communicate better with your tenants in a, in a digital way that obviously aided the ability of these uh, outfits to scale up the maintenance and management.
0: But while technology did make things easier, it's still not seamless. It's difficult to oversee maintenance for 500 single family homes that are spread out across, say, 50 acres, instead of employing a few superintendents to look after 500 units spread out across a few apartment buildings, Josh Migdal says. Josh, can you explain some of the technical issues that institutional investors face when owning single family rentals?
2: Single family is not multifamily. And I think that... Uh, institutional investors who have previously owned multifamily properties have found it easy to scale because you have someone on site and um, the mechanicals and other capital improvements are contained to one location. When you own single family homes that are all over the place, it becomes much more difficult to, number one, I think underwrite what the cost of the repairs are and then quickly provide those repairs to the residents and the tenant in due time?
0: Right. It's not like an apartment property where I can file a maintenance request online and have my sink fixed in the morning by a super that lives in my building.
2: Right. And the single family home, there's not going to be a maintenance person that's there right in the building who, if you have, if your toilet is running or your sink is clogged, They're going to run right up there and fix it for you right away. There's also an issue where it's not contained in a building and you don't have people on site all the time. So if someone rents it, but they go out of town because they're going to remote work for the next two months and a pipe breaks, no one is there to look at it.
0: And what sort of legal issues does this pose for large owners of single family rentals?
2: I think that there's going to be a lot of legal challenges, especially as rent gets higher and higher for the single family space for what's called constructive eviction. And it will be due to the fact that these landlords, these institutional landlords are simply incapable due to the vastness of their portfolio of timely fixing things.
0: Constructive eviction is when a landlord has essentially failed to make the home habitable for the tenant. It could be that there's no hot water or heat, or they fail to make timely repairs. The tenant can then file a lawsuit against their own landlord.
2: You know, you're going to have, as these homes age, you're going to have issues with settling and, you know, full-scale breakdowns of roofs and air conditioning. And I think that that's a problem.
0: But Josh hasn't seen a wave of constructive eviction cases yet. Though it might pose an issue in the future, institutional investors are still pouring more money than ever into the single-family rental sector. From the start of the pandemic, we saw J.P. Morgan, Blackstone, American Homes for Rent, Invitation Homes, all put a significant amount of cash into this asset class. Ed, how and why did the pandemic spur this investment?
1: Complicated question. Okay, so... So the top line is you know, the pandemic uh, made people worried about density, that living in a dense environment increased their chances of getting sick. There were a lot of headlines about people wanting to leave A, multi-family structures, and B, downtown densely populated areas and flee to the suburbs, and by extension, flee to single-family property because of that fear. But I think there's, a, there's definitely another thing at play here, and that is, is what the pandemic has taught us, is that even if going to the office, quote unquote, is still valuable, there is a lot more we can do in, in terms of working from home than we used to think. For certain workers at the margin, their desirability to live in a downtown environment has declined. And the other thing that we are just beginning to see in the past couple of years is actual construction of build-to-rent developments. You know, in retrospect, it's amazing that this wasn't developed before now to build entire neighborhoods of single-family properties that are specifically designed for rental, because then you automatically get the geographic concentration, you get automatic scale in the maintenance, you get to provide renters with amenities that they would not have had before, maybe if they were in a multi-family uh, environment.
0: But even with all this cash and development, single family rentals still only make up around 4% of the total housing market in the US. Of that, Only around 17% of single-family rentals are owned by institutional investors, REITs, limited partnerships, and LLCs, according to data from 2018 that was published last year. As pandemic restrictions continue to lift, more people get vaccinated, and people return to offices in major cities, it'll be interesting to see whether these institutional investors will still chase after single-family rentals. But right now, there aren't any signs the firms are easing up. Deconstruct airs every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Or you can listen at therealdeal.com. For comments on this episode or on the series, feel free to reach me at podcasts at Next week, we're taking a tour of one of the most expensive homes currently on the market in LA with Compass broker Aaron Kerman. Tune in then.